Uh, it'll be next week. Hopefully we'll see um, all of you there, but just in case, Merry Christmas. And uh, as Philip prayed, for those of you that will not be joining us at the retreat, we will miss you uh, for sure. Um, but yeah, so every Christmas uh, this time of year, what I like to do is I like to kind of read through all the gospel accounts of what Christmas is. And I know we go through the Christmas stories and we've heard it every year. And so it's the same story. It's written the same way in the Bible. And so, but I like to read every single Christmas text. Um, and I even like to read some of the Old Testament ones that we've been reading from Isaiah and from other places that foretell or kind of foreshadow who Jesus is. And, and then I go through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in chronological order because it's the way that they're written. And each gospel tells the Christmas story a little differently. Each author has a different perspective. Each author has a different thing that they're trying to communicate, right? Um, and so as I practice this habit of reading through the Christmas stories again and again, each and every single year as I prepare for Advent and getting ready for the season, one of the things that's happened kind of uh, of late is I, when I begin the Matthew portion, uh, there's a strong temptation in my heart not to read these first 17 verses that I'm about to read to you in a second. And if you remember, the very first sermon I ever gave at KCPCH here in Houston in December of 2012 when I came to interview was from this passage because I happened to come during the Advent season, and so I thought it was appropriate to preach that, um, and some of you might remember it. But since then, even though I know that these verses aren't just a list of names, even though I know these verses have a lot of theological meaning, because I felt like I had learned them, because I felt like I had gleaned all that I needed to glean from them, I stopped reading them, or I would do maybe what some of you do is I would read it, but I would like skim it, which is not really reading it. Like you kind of read like every fourth word or something, like to pretend like you read it, but you don't really comprehend anything. And I did it that way because I was like, oh, I already know what this means. I'm a pastor. I've preached it. I get it. And, you know, things like that. But this year, as we're preparing for this Advent sermon series, um, and we're sticking in the book of Matthew, we've been kind of going all over, but we've been kind of going back to the very beginning, and as we finish there, I really was convicted to read it again and to look into it again, because I think the challenge for us is, even though we know the Christmas story and we've heard it every single year since we were yay big, and you're in the pageant, and you hear all the na uh, nativity scenes, and you hear everything, that each and every single Christmas... That if we're indeed living into the joy of what Christmas is, as we've seen, we will find new and exciting and fresh perspectives and new life in and through the text. And so I was like, you know what, I'm going to look at this again. And when I looked at it again, I discovered new things that I had never known before. And it's really helped shape and really have, has given like, life to this Advent season and this Christmas season. And I hope uh, to be able to share that with you. So I want to share three things that I've learned. One of them was kind of uh, the same as what I've known. And then two of them are very, very new. And I want to share them just very briefly with you, the three things that I've learned. And then we're going to kind of go through them. Here's the three things. One, the Bible, all of it, and particularly the Christmas story and everything held within it, is great is a great announcement and not great advice. The Bible is not great advice. It doesn't give you great advice of any kind. It is a great announcement and there's a great distinction there. Secondly, that Jesus in his genealogy, his ancestry, flips the world's values upside down and completely shakes everything up. So all the values that we think are important in the world, through the genealogy we'll discover that they're all completely flipped upside down. And the last one, and this might be maybe the most striking one for me, at least new for me, is that Jesus and Christmas, if you really read, particularly through the genealogy, you'll realize that Jesus and his coming in Christmas is really about Sabbath rest and that Jesus is the true Sabbath 
rest. And so we were just going to go through these things together today, and hopefully you'll be able to really dive deep into what it means that Jesus came down and how he came down and through whom he came down. So if you have your Bibles with you, and if not, the words will be on the screen as always. We're going to read from Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, all these amazing names. Um, I had to read through it a couple times to practice so I don't make mistakes because some of these names are weird. Uh, whenever I read through them, I always imagine what would, what, would, what would happen if one of my three kids were named these things, and then I chuckle. But anyways, not to... Uh, not to uh, uh, make fun of anybody who has these names now and before, but anyways, I digress. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Minadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab, Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who, has been the wife, who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam was the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amon, Amon the father of Josiah. Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah had become the father of Sheotil, and Sheotil the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abihud, Abihud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud. Eliud was the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathen, and Mathen the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, we pray that there's a lot of names in here, and they seem maybe boring or weird or intriguing based upon the names because they're not common names these days but we pray that we would see why they're included because Matthew didn't have to write the story this way but Matthew decided to begin the story begin your story this way and there's significance and we pray that you would teach us what that means and more so than teach us that that teaching that knowledge that wisdom would have a great impact in how we see the world how we know the world how we see you how we know you and therefore how we live and in this Christmas season, this Advent season, may we know that you're coming. You're coming to us to save us, to love us, to give us. Your grace and your mercy mean so much to us. And may that be indeed reflected in the lives that we live day in and day out. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So the Bible, to me is a great announcement and not great advice. And one thing that I noticed in Matthew's version of the gospel is that he begins very Matter-of-factly, he begins this way, and he begins by saying the genealogy, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, right? And as evidenced by the other Gospels, each Gospel writer, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, had a very specific idea of how they wanted to write it so that people could best understand who Jesus was, and that if you haven't checked, Jesus is a pretty big deal. 
Mark begins with something like the beginning, and then he talks right into the baptism of Jesus, the prepare the way, that kind of a thing. We went over that a few weeks ago. Luke's version begins with the birth, the story of the birth, and then Jesus' family, and there's Mary and Elizabeth and, and all that kind of stuff. And then John, maybe the weirdest of them all, begins with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and with God, and all these things. But Matthew chooses, maybe most boringly or most unexcitingly, the genealogy. He doesn't start with anything like once upon a time or anything like it. Because if you don't know, most stories that you read, most legends, most famous stories of this kind, all begin with some sort of version of once upon a time. And the reason why they begin that way is because the moment you hear once upon a time, you begin to think, oh, what I'm about to read and what I'm about to hear is this very epic story of something really awesome, a legend, a fairy tale, something of that kind. And when you hear once upon a time and you think about a legend, you think about a fairy tale, you think about something like this, what you're immediately met with is the idea that what you're about to read is an amazing story. You're going to get captured into it. You're going to get enveloped by it. But at the same time, we don't necessarily know if all that you're about to read is actually true. But what you do know, that is it a good, that it is indeed a good story. And when you read a good story, and you can think of all the different fairy tales and all the different epics and all the movies that we see, when you read or hear or see a good story, our reaction, generally, is to take elements of that story and then to try to reenact it into our lives. So for those of you who are Korean drama addicts, when you watch the Korean drama, you try to emulate that romance or whatever is going on. Hopefully you don't try to emulate where the person dies because almost always somebody dies of some disease. But you emulate something like that. When you watch a superhero movie, maybe you don't do this now, but when my kids, they haven't really watched, but when my kids watch anything like that, you know what they do? The automatic reaction is you want to go get the Flash suit on or the Batman suit on. You want to be Batman. You want to go save the world and do all these things. And the reason why you do so is because you want to somehow make it happen, some element any element, you want that to happen in your life. And this primarily is, it what, is what advice or counsel of some kind does to you. If you ever come talk to me, a lot of times maybe I'll give you advice. And the advice that I give to you generally will help you and generally hopefully will help you. And then what you try to do is you try to make that happen in your life. You try to take that advice, you try to take that counsel, and in light of what you've heard or seen, you try to do it. And the idea is that if you do what you've seen or if you try what you've heard, then maybe it'll indeed happen in your life. But an announcement or a news is very different from that of an advice, right? Because what an announcement does, it just tells you what happened. It tells you facts about what has already happened, and based upon what has happened, you have to react. When we hear about different things like the shootings or different you know, tragic things, your heart reacts to it. Or when you hear great things, your heart reacts to it in light of what happened. Your life changes in light of what happened. So when Jesus, or when Matthew here starts with the genealogy, the recorded genealogy of Matthew, what he's saying is, listen up, something has happened in history and you have to take notice of what has happened. And so Christmas, because the gospel and Christmas is not great advice but a great announcement, is not trying to tell you how you and I are supposed to live our lives and how to make it better. Let me repeat that. Christmas is not teaching us how to live our lives better. It's all about realizing that something happened in that manger, in that city. Not reacting or not wishing something would have happened or we hope would happen, but dealing with what has happened and then trying to figure out how it changes us. And I think we've seen this the last three weeks. John had an expectation, right? 
and he saw Jesus, and then he had his expectations disappointed because he thought Jesus was going to be one thing, and then he had to react to what it was. And then Joseph, the same thing. Joseph thought that he was going to get married and do all these things, and then Jesus happened, and then he had to react and then live his life accordingly. And so Christmas isn't an inspiring story. It's not a fairy tale. It's not a legend. It's not something you should live by. And think about it. If Christmas was an inspiring story, what does it inspire you to do? Have you ever thought about that? If you take the Christmas story just as is, what does it inspire you to do? How would you reenact that? Does it inspire you to become shepherds? Does it inspire you to get impregnated by some spirit, something like that, and then have your baby in some manger? Like, what does it inspire you to do? It inspire you to do anything. Does it inspire you to all of a sudden have your life and your baby and your family threatened by some mad king and then have to run away to some foreign country and then come back? There's nothing inspiring about the story in and of itself, and it's not advice. It is about hearing and reacting to the announcement that something amazing has happened in that city way long ago, and then having our lives rotate, reoriented, and adapted around the news. This may be sad, but if anything happens to your family or a loved one, and something tragic happens to you, or something great happens to you, it's news, and you react to it. You don't try to emulate it, you react to it, and that is indeed what Christmas is. This is not good advice, it is a great announcement. And so in light of that, then what is Jesus announcing? Well, I think something that Jesus is announcing is that through his genealogy, what Jesus is showing is that the, the world's values, the things that we value, the way that we value our world and everything in it, has been flipped completely upside down. And we know this because when we read this, we read very, very interesting things in here. And in truth, what you're reading seems like a genealogy, but more so you should consider it kind of like a resume. And who knows what a resume is? Some of the college people definitely know what a resume is. Who knows, what's a resume? Tongue tag, what is a resume? A list of your accomplishments. A list of your accomplishments. It's the way that you show someone, kind of right, it's a list of the way that you show someone and say, hey, this is who I am and I'm a pretty cool person and you should take me and employ me. It's the way that you recommend yourself to the world. And whenever you try to get a job, most likely you have to write up a resume at some point. And all your resume, for all the people who work in the back, they know, shows who you are, what you've accomplished, what you're good at, why you're worthy, and why you should get a job over somebody else in some sense. And the interesting thing about resumes and the people who've ever written one, you have choices on how to build your resume, right? You get to pick and choose what you want to include. And most people, when they write a resume, they doctor it up a little bit to match kind of who they want themselves to be presented as, right? You purposely leave out stuff that aren't so good. So if you had a job and got fired within a couple of weeks, you're not going to put that in your resume, right? Or maybe you had a, or another way you kind of doctor it up is maybe you got a job, but it wasn't all that interesting, but you made it seem like, like really what you were was a guy who like literally loaded up the fries at McDonald's but you call yourself like a food engineer or something, like you doctor up whatever that you're doing to make it look better and embellish, right? Ordinary things to make them seem fairly spectacular and whatnot. And people back in the day, they did the exact same thing we do with our resumes. They would take their genealogies and they would leave out parts they didn't want anybody to know and they would kind of doctor up and highlight the really good parts of people or families and different things a part of the ancestry that weren't maybe the way that it is. We talked about King Herod a little bit ago, but King Herod was notorious for this. He literally erased people from his family tree. So they would never, ever, ever be traced to him ever, ever again. So if you ever had a cousin or whatever, somebody in the back that like literally sucked or whatever, then he would literally just take them and erase their names so they were never a part of who he was. 
But Jesus, as we read through the genealogy, interestingly enough through Matthew, does exactly the opposite. Rather than erasing the bad things that would make him look terrible and or embellishing the normal things to make them look amazing, Jesus purposely leaves in every bad person imaginable and he even takes it one more step and highlights their terribleness more than highlighting their greatness. He does it the exact opposite way to the way that you and I. Now let me tell you one thing. If you're ever writing a resume, don't do what Jesus does. It's not going to help you. But what Jesus does is indeed really, really, really fascinating. He highlights the worst of his family tree and says to everyone, this is who I am. And so the question we have to ask is, what is he saying through the thing? So when you read through the genealogy, you're going to notice a couple things. First, the first thing you notice is that there are five women in the genealogy. And again, I apologize to all the ladies out there, but women back in these days were not important people in the society, and so you didn't include women at all. If you were to build a family tree now, you would hopefully include your mom and your grandmother and all, the, all these people, but they didn't back then. They didn't include them at all. But in this genealogy, for whatever reason, there's five women. And what this tells you, right, is that women were important to Jesus. What tells you that Jesus is about including outsiders. And interestingly about the women, too, is that all the women in the story are non-Jews. And again, to a Jew, you would never include a non-Jew in your genealogy. And there's an unfortunate maybe history of the Korean people, but if, you're, if your parents are like super Korean and super traditional and somehow somewhere along the line they had a Japanese person in your genealogy, you'd probably include, this exclude them. Because the, this, is not a, this is not a racial, like it's just, that's just the way that the histories were, right? Or like if you were a German way back in the days of, of Hitler, you wouldn't include a Jew in your genealogy. It's not a good look. You would exclude that, Right? But for Jesus, he does the exact opposite. He includes all these non-Jew Gentile women in his genealogy, in his resume. And remember, Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior, the one we've all been waiting for, come to save us. There's a lot on the line for him, but yet he's including outsiders, women, and people all left and right. Gender outsiders, racial outsiders, everyone who would have been excluded by the law of Moses, never allowed in the temple, everyone who's not a part of, allowed to be a part of the uh, people of God, were all put in and highlighted. But even more, even beyond the fact that he included women and non-Jew women, if you know the histories of these women and some of the characters in here, then it becomes even more fascinating. Because these women and some of the characters in the, in, the, in the genealogy aren't just your normal, regular, kind of run-of-the-mill type of women. No, no, no. They and their stories are literally the centerpieces of some of the most nasty, evil, and rated R type stories that the Bible has to include. And I just want to highlight a few. Not all of them. We don't have the time for that. But let me just tell you the first. And again, some, some of this is not going to be the most pleasant to hear, but I, I want to do the Bible justice. The first name I want to highlight is the name of Tamar. If you know her story, her story comes in uh, Genesis 38, I believe. But it starts with the man named Judah. Judah, um, as you know, is one of Joseph's, the way, way, way back Joseph's, is one of his brothers. And if you know the story of Joseph, do you, who remembers the story? The, Joseph and his brothers wanted to kill Joseph because they were all jealous that he was his father's favorite one. Do you know the story? Right? And Judah, interestingly, of all of his brothers, is the one that suggests, hey, let's not kill him. That's kind of mean. But even better than killing him, let's sell him because then we'll get money. It's even better. Right? So Judah's the person who came up with that idea, and then they sell him. Right? And so that whole story happens. But Judah, later on through his wife, has three sons. 
And Tamar is the woman that's married to his oldest son, son Ur. His name is E-R, Ur. But interestingly, Ur dies before Tamar can provide him a son and an heir to the throne of Judah, which is super important back then. And if you know anything about the histories, women, generally, their one major role, and again, I apologize to all the women out there, but women, your major role was to literally provide a son so that the name of your family could get carried on. Now, they had this interesting custom back in those days that if the eldest son wasn't able to have an heir through his wife, and if the eldest son had younger brothers, it was the younger brother's duty by law to impregnate his sister-in-law in lieu of his brother dying so that that son that would then be produced, which is technically his son, would be known forever as his brother's son and then be able to carry the name on. So your job was to literally provide seed for an impregnated baby and then for that baby to not even be your son but the son of your dead older brother who would then carry the name of the family throne. Weird. But that was his duty. And Onan was his second brother's name, didn't want to do that. He was not cool with this idea. And so there's this verse in the Bible that's kind of interestingly parsed, but it basically says that he spilled his seed because he didn't want to impregnate Tamar. And we don't really exactly know what that means, but it has something to do with some interesting sexual things. You can read about it later. There's two different theories out there, both of which are not very good, but I, let's move on. Right? So then God becomes angry with Onan for not following the customs and basically strikes him dead. And so now two sons are dead and there's only the third one, the youngest one. But the youngest one is way too young to impregnate Tamar, a.k.a. he's not yet in puberty. And so they're like, oh, and so Judah's like, Tamar, will you do me a favor, do me a solid and wait until the youngest one is old enough to impregnate you? And she's like, okay. Well, not like that. I imagine she had said it a little differently. But she says, okay. <laughs> and then after she says, okay, right, Tamar, I'm guessing by now, if you can kind of figure out, she loses her husband, and then she's treated very interestingly by his younger brother, who then dies on account of him not doing what he's supposed to do with her, which is weird. And then she's got to wait for the third one, who's not yet even of age. She then takes matters into her own hands. So one day, she... Oh, actually, sorry. And kind of in all of through this, Judah's wife dies. So Judah's now a widower. And so it's Judah, Tamar, and then the youngest son who is not yet of age. And so then Tamar takes the story and takes matters into her own hands. I know, it's crazy. This is in the Bible, by the way, right? Tamar takes her matters. So then she one day dresses up like a prostitute, hangs out in Judah's courtyard, seduces him, and then sleeps with him, and then gets pregnant through Judah. And if you're catching the lines, that's incest. And then she has twins, Perez and the other guy, the guy, I can't remember his name anymore. I got so, what is it, Perez and Jera? Zera. And Perez happens to be in the line of Jesus. So Jesus is great, 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 great granddaddy is an incestuous son through a Gentile woman who could not have sons with two of the sons and therefore then got their daddy pregnant secretly and then had that all carry on and that's why her name is included. I would not include this story in my genealogy, but Jesus does. Moral outsiders, 
and this is not even an outsider. It's like a moral, I don't even know what, you, what category you put them in. They're all included. Okay? And the other women are not, they're like right up there with Tamar. And you can read the stories later. Now, I want to highlight a second name. Okay? King David. Now, it says David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. The NASB puts Bathsheba's name in there. In the Greek, Bathsheba's name is not included. And there's a reason for that. But now you're thinking, David, King David, like the King David. Now, of course, you would include King David. He's a cool guy. He is. In the Bible, he's a cool guy. He writes like the majority of the Psalms, right? He's the king and he does all these wonderful things. But the part that he mentions is that there is a wife of Uriah through whom his son Solomon had come by. Now, again, in the original Greek, Bathsheba's name is not mentioned, and the reason why his name is not mentioned is because what Matthew's trying to do is he's trying to highlight the entire story of all that had happened. And let me highlight that story for you again in detail. Most of us maybe know that the story of Bathsheba, that Bathsheba is Uriah's wife, and one day David saw Bathsheba bathing and was like, ooh, yeah, mm mm-hmm. And then was like, you, come, I'm king, literally, right? I know, not cool. That's just the way it happened. And then they, and then because David wanted her, he sleeps with her, and then she gets pregnant. And then later on, David realizes, oh, no, people are going to realize, right? Because Uriah was away at a war when this all happened, and the timing-wise, they would all figure out, kind of like Mary and Joseph, somebody would figure out that that was not Uriah's baby. And so then David's like, oh, I got to cover this. And so what David does, he sends Uriah to be on the front line of the next great battle. And if you know anything about the way people battled back then, it's kind of like Braveheart or some of those movies. Literally, people in the front line, guess what happens to them? They all die. They're like human shields to the oncoming arrows and everything, right? So he arranges, he basically murders Uriah, who's Bathsheba's husband, because he lusted after her and got her pregnant, and he tried to cover it up. That's a really terrible, terrible story. But the story gets better, worse. You know, how, it, it gets juicier. That's not a good term either. Because Uriah, if you follow the story, Uriah actually happened to be one of David's best friends. Earlier on in David's life, before he became King David, Uriah, David was on the loose, or not on the loose, David was being chased by King Saul because King Saul wanted to kill him. Do you guys know this story? Maybe you learned it in Sunday school. King Saul is trying to kill him, and David is out running around the wilderness, and there's a select group of very brave, loving men who go out into the wilderness against Saul's armies and Saul's people to protect David and to rescue him, and rescue him they did, and guess who one of those men was? Uriah. So to the man that saved his life before he became king, once he becomes king, he lusts after his best friend, maybe one of his best friend's wives, and I could name people in here and just imagine if that happened to you. And then not only does he take her because he's king and because he can, then he hides it and arranges that his, one of his best friends who earlier saved his life from another deranged king arranges that he would get murdered so that all of it would be wiped clean. And through that son, Solomon, who's another crazy character, comes Jesus. What is Jesus doing? Why include these people? These very wicked, sinful, dare I call crazy people. Why does he include them? He doesn't have to. None of us in this room, if people in your family were like this, would be proud to say, hey, you know what? My great, 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 great granddad 
was the son of an incestuous marriage. Cool. This is he on the tree. What is Jesus doing? Why do it this way? Remember, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one everyone's been waiting for. There's a big deal attached to who he is, and yet he's doing this. Why? Because Jesus and God is wanting to tell everyone in the world that he owns and is loving of all people. That the Mosaic law and the law of the time can exclude everyone, and yet Jesus and God is taking these people, all of his people, to be his family. Which is to say that Jesus and God takes all people, included, excluded, interior, exterior, to tell them that no matter who you are, you are mine. And in our society, we think that this is true. People tell you that if you can dream it, you can achieve it. It is not true. There are limitations in every culture to what you can and cannot do. Particularly in those days, there are very strict limitations. If you were the son of a carpenter, guess where you were going to be? A carpenter. If you're the son of a king, guess where you're going to be? You're going to be the king. There was not a whole lot of movement up and down that social scale back then, and there's even still not that much of a movement now today. There's some, but not a whole lot. But Jesus and God are the only God's people, kings, that will literally look at the whole world and say, no matter who you are, where you come from, what you've done, what you've accomplished, what terrible things you've done, no matter who you are, you are my family, if you so choose to be. Jesus is the only one that can claim that your social pedigree, your status, your previous history has no bearing on his love and his care for you. It doesn't matter if you're Tamar or Perez or Judah, and it doesn't even matter if you're King David. Interesting with King David, he doesn't highlight King David's greatness. Great King David is known as the man after God's own heart, but that's not what he highlights. He highlights the lowest part of David's life. Why? Because he's trying to tell everyone it doesn't matter that David was the king because he wasn't the king because he was good. Clearly, he wasn't that good. David was the king. Why? Because Jesus and God put him there because of the grace of who he is. In Jesus, prostitutes and kings sit equal at the table. In Jesus, Jew and Gentile sit equal at the table. Men and women sit equal at the table. Moral, immoral sit equal at the table. Only in Jesus are everyone, is everyone truly equal. That is the privilege of what Christmas means to us if we call ourselves a Christian. Are you seeing the honor of what it means to be a Christian? No other faith system in the world says this. Every other one says you have to earn it by your bootstraps. Every single other one says you have to beat it. And if you don't, then get out because you're not worthy. And maybe you think now you're doing great. But at some point in your life, I can almost guarantee it, something is going to happen where you don't feel worthy. And maybe these words now don't mean something to you because you're distracted or whatever. You're like, you know what, I'm only in high school or whatever, and it's okay while I'm in college. But at some point, these words will hit home and you'll realize. The thing you want more than anything is for someone to look at you and not based upon what you've done or what you can offer, but just based on who you are and say, I love you and I care for you and I will forever and ever and ever. No ifs, ands, or buts. And there's a person, a God even, who are saying, The world's values, esteem, prestige, status, 
power, all of it matters not to Jesus. And so therefore, in this church, in this body, in this congregation, all of it does not matter. All are welcome, all are loved, all are the children of God as long as they want to be. And that is what Christmas is proclaiming. This is the news. And I want to ask, is this what we are proclaiming? Or more importantly, is this what you know? And the third thing that I learned then is that in and through all this, because Jesus welcomes all of us as family, then we find out through the genealogy that Jesus is the true Sabbath rest. The last verse of the genealogy, interestingly, goes like this. So all the generations from Abraham to David are the 14 generations. And from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. And you're probably thinking, like, Matthew's a little crazy. He's doing all of this, and he's kind of saying all these things. What is the 14s and what do all these numbers mean? And I think we've kind of learned from now, if you've been through the Revelation series, that numbers mean something in the Bible. And these numbers really do mean something. And I'm thankful to Tim Keller for this insight because I found out about it when I was reading something that he had written. But what he says is that Jesus is the seventh seven. Seventh seven. And let me explain. The number seven is a very important number in the Bible. And if you've been with us through the Revelation series, we understand that number seven means completeness, means fullness, it means all of it. So if you have the seventh rest or seven this, it means it's complete. But more so, the number seven, particularly in the Old Testament, it meant rest. On the seventh day, what did God do? He rested from his creation. He took a step back to look at everything and declared that it was good. So the Sabbath day always for the nation of Israel and for us too happens on the seventh day. Until after Jesus comes, then we now practice it on the first day, which is Sunday, but that's a whole other thing. But Sabbath was so important to the people back in the day that even animals rested on the seventh. And more importantly, the land. Every seventh year, the land was not allowed to be worked and harvested. So all the farmers and everyone, which is everybody, all the people were not allowed to work and everybody found rest on the seventh, even the land that people lived on. And the land was money. The land was life. And then further then, on the seventh seven, or the 49th year, every 49th year, seven times seven is 49, every 49th year on the seventh seven, there was this thing called the year of jubilee. And in the year of Jubilee, the custom was that all the slaves, and people owned slaves back then, all the slaves we freed. And you had to find new ones, I guess, at the end of the next year. All the debts that you might have had, any debt, for those college students, if you're racking up college debt right now, wouldn't you love for next year to be the year of Jubilee and all your debts are erased? Parents, I would. I got debts on cars and things like that, you know. On the year of Jubilee, every debt is forgiven. Basically, the idea is on the year of the 7th, 49th year, the Jubilee year, you were freed from everything that was burdening you so that you and everyone could find rest. And Jesus, through the genealogy Matthew's trying to tell us, is the 7th, 7, is the rest for all, forever, for eternity, the 7th, 7. And you're like, how do you figure that, Pastor Pete? Because 14 plus 14, that's not 14, that's a 4. 14 plus 14 plus 14 is what? 42 divided by 7 is what? 6, which means that Jesus coming on the end of 6 sevens means he's the 7th 7, the true Sabbath rest, the rest for all people forever and ever and ever. And in him, you and I will find rest from all of your burdens and troubles if you allow him to be your Savior and your God. Put it all together. 
Do you see what Matthew's doing? From the jump, he is telling everybody who will read this story forever and ever, if you understand it, Jesus has come for a reason. He's not some fairy tale. He's not some legend. I'm not giving you good advice. I'm not telling you you should live this way. I'm telling you that the king of the universe is announcing to every single person in the entire cosmos that indeed he has come. He is owning everybody in the world, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter how you got there, and he aims to give you rest from all of your burdens. Maybe you feel burdened by the stress of who you have to be as students. Anybody feel that way? You don't have to raise your hand. Maybe you feel burdened because you're not as good as so-and-so over there. You're not going to get into the college of so-and-so over there. Maybe you feel burdened because you're not, you think you're not as pretty or as beautiful as someone over there or as handsome and tall as someone over there. Maybe you feel burdened because you're not as rich or as wealthy as someone over there, or as capable, or as talented, artistic, musical, whatever you want to call it. Maybe you don't have the family that someone else over there has. You don't have the Christmas traditions that someone over there has. No matter what your burdens are, no matter what your anguishes are, no matter what you are, no matter how hard you're fighting to fight, to do better, to be better, to pull yourself up and make yourself better, Jesus is saying you do not need to prove to me forever and ever that you are better because I own you, I am your God, and you can be my son and my daughter if you so choose to find rest in me. The troubles of the world, try to fix them, you'll never fix them because they always continue on. The only way to fix it quote-unquote, is to find rest in Jesus. And he's saying, I am the true rest. In me, you will be who you were meant to be forever and ever and ever. And that is the greatest gift and announcement that any one person could ever tell you for the rest of your life because there's nothing else like it. Try me. This is the Jesus we get. This is what Christmas is all about. It's not some cute story of some baby born in a manger. Yeah, it's cute. But it's something so much greater than we could ever imagine. It is why Jesus later on in Matthew says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. He's saying, Come to me, for I've come to you. And if you so choose to come to me, then I will give you rest, I will give you joy, I will give you life that you can never find anywhere else, ever, no matter how hard you look. So maybe we need to do this as we go. One of the things that you know about me and the way that we do ministry here at the church is I don't ever force anything upon you. I don't ever make you do anything. It's because you will one day choose whether this story, whether this life, whether this God is indeed someone worth considering, whether this God maybe one day will be more important than your phone or your social media feeds or your intelligence or the school that you go to or the diploma that you get or the job and the the office chair that you sit in or the house you live in or the car you drive. That this God is more important than that for your life because this God is the only one that can actually make your life the way it was supposed to be. And maybe you don't realize that now and that's fine. But consider what this means, who this God is. 
And for one moment, maybe this moment, for the next couple minutes, as I invite the praise team up soon, you'll take and consider your heart and how it's doing. The burdens of your life and the things that you do not like. Maybe for once you will not push it away by distracting yourself with something else going on, but you actually listen and hear the word and you'll say, God, I come to you with everything that I am, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I pray and I ask that this announcement, this news, this Christmas, you, my God, who owns everyone, that I will believe once and for all that it does not matter who I am and how I got here or who I will become based upon my efforts, but you tell me that I am a beloved son and daughter of a king unlike any other. This is Christmas. So I invite you to go to him, for he is waiting, arms open wide, to say, won't you come? Find the rest that you deserve. Find the life you've been created for. And won't you come and live it and experience exactly what that is, a life unlike any other. The joy, the goodness of Christmas is that this God would come to offer his life and rest for us all. Let us pray. Father, it's easy to every year go and bypass all that this means. It's easy to get distracted by the many things going on. To just go through the motions. It's easy to try to fill the hurt and to fill the anguish and fill the emptiness that we all indelibly feel with a bypassing fling with a bypassing thing that would make our lives better. It's easy to do so, we know. But we pray that we would take hold and really confront and face the news that you have come to save us, you have come to free us, you have come to release us, and you have come to give us rest. And you tell the world, everyone who is willing to listen, that you have come for every single person, no matter who you are, whether you're a criminal, to a prostitute, to a king, whether you're extraordinary or just meager average, that in your eyes there's no such thing as average or whatnot. Everybody is a son of the king. Everybody is a daughter of the king. Everybody belongs and is all worthy as you are worthy. We pray that we would become a community that sees everyone in here as you see us. That would extend the grace you extend to us that we would become your people. And that just as you tell us that none of that stuff matters, that we in here would also say to one another that none of that stuff matters here. For we are your people. May your grace expound upon us. May your love envelop us. And may your spirit flow in and through us that we would know you and know you and have life. That indeed we would say, Merry Christmas. The King has come to change the world. And life is anew. So we reflect and respond, O oh God, will you give us the spirit to do so? And may these words pour forth from our souls and not just our lips. 
And may this Christmas season, may we proclaim the great news, the news that our God has come.